0: And this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. so hi everybody we're here today with Stephanie Felsberger and Muskan Shafat to talk about marginal identities and especially and specifically gender and how it interacts with technology so Stephanie Felsberger has been on the podcast with us before Uh, she's a PhD candidate at Cambridge University in gender studies whose research focuses on data flows and period tracking apps Um, hi Steph Hi. thanks so much for being again
1: I'm excited to be here
0: And Muskan Shafat is a MS candidate in Data and Society at the London School of Economics, where she focuses on systems of oppression. And very excited to have you on for the first time.
2: Hi, very excited to be here. Thank you.
0: So maybe we'll just start with a question uh, more broadly about feminism and and technology. Um, There's a joke that kind of goes around. um, I think it's often... Very relevant here at Cambridge, but probably in other places too. That that something is such second wave feminism, or so maybe like this is a question for both of you. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how the two of you think about feminism, whether it's second, third, post feminism, um, and how and how that interacts with technology and "quote unquote" the age of information.
1: Yeah. So uh, my thoughts on feminism. How, how am I going to summarize all of this in like a quick podcast reply? Um, I don't know I feel like for me mm, feminism is a lot about like collective action and solidarity uh, with people and trying to make material change happen for I don't know like trans people trans women and building solidarities and movements and I feel like it's such an important perspective to bring into conversation around tech and like the age of information and the information revolution because In my understanding, like information and like the age of information is very flat and like it it pretends to flatten hierarchies and power or like hides them more like. So if you take like that kind of approach um, to looking at tech, it immediately points you to questions of power, questions of hierarchies and how tech is used in that. And I found a really nice quote this morning. Uh, I was reading the Feminist Surveillance Studies book in preparation. And it's, uh, it had this quote about um, how this approach is kind of like looking at the information revolution through the lens of power. And I really like that. So in my mind, that's how kind of the things like, inter- intersect.
2: Very heavy duty question, Alina. Um, so happy Steph, you went first. The way I understand feminism is very personal. So growing up, I always thought, Men and women are the same, and the world is created in such a fashion where there's equality. But as as a woman now, as a feminist now, I think that that idea is just not true. And I I actually believe that shouldn't be talked to kids at like any age at like, like any a level. You can say that it's you know too big of a load to give to a child or a young person, but. I I think taste of reality is better. So for me, fem- feminism is a struggle for, for genders that have been othered or oppressed over time to have the flexibility, the freedom to be whoever they want to be. They don't have to be. We don't have to be like men. But we want the right to be whatever version of ourselves we want to be without feeling the urge to... Uh, hide a a part of our personality a part of our desires a part of our dreams that is how I understand feminism in terms of feminism and technology the questions that I ask is who are these women who are who, who are being represented in in those ads and in those media is that the whole spectrum of women like what about what about the representation of black women what about representation of women who wear hijab, for example? but there is also some way to go ahead. so in this world of technology uh, there's, uh, there's a paper by Rosalind Gill that is one of my favorite papers uh, this, this idea that women self-surveil and there's girlfriend gazing where you know we, we look at our own outfits and our, the way we, we, we look. And we criticize ourselves, which is self-surveillance, and then girlfriend gazing, looking at the other, I and mean, we're like, you know, she's you know, any sort of judgment related to the other. So, even in the world of technology, where uh, there are some promises that technology is making to us, to make us to make us go forward, I feel, I feel like there's still a there's still a power dynamic between. The gender and the races that um, that have held power for a long time.
1: Yeah, I feel like you said it so nicely, right? Because you're like, ah, oh, there's a certain group of people that give a quota to women, and that sentence in itself already implies the power dynamics behind it, right? Because I feel like in Austria, like I grew up in the Austrian countryside, so it's not a very feminist uh, context at all. Like it's very much like traditional families like everybody works on the farm there's a patriarch grandfather things like that Uh, but my mom was always very like no 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 like everybody has to work in the house and stuff so it was also like really ingrained in us that you know people have the same like people should have similar responsibilities and rights depending on or like regardless of like of their their gender so I was trying to like think think through that and how how I relate that to um to you know looking at tech and I guess the the rights and responsibilities thing is a is a good point um I wanted to add something before about like the mm, why I feel like a feminist lens is also really good for looking at or is such a useful thing to have when you're looking at te- technology because um, I feel like when you talk about technology there's the language is so like warped uh, and I was thinking at security cameras and I feel like they're called security cameras because they have this promise that they're going to like provide security but if you're coming from like a question of you know like Moscow was saying like everybody should have the time the autonomy and the quality to like you know be their their selves security cameras are really not (laughs) helping anyone They're surveillance devices that um like while they might say oh we'll protect you from harassment or of sorts of etc or racial harassment what they're actually doing is protecting you know business owners property owners and they might be used to like identify somebody who participated in a protest so i feel like they're really straightforward example of why having like such an approach to studying technology is really is really
2: useful that is really interesting steph this idea of who is being watched who is watching and for whose safety uh, takes me back to my research actually so when I was in my senior year I did Stanford in Oxford uh, which was one of the best experiences and I was this enthusiast who was just understanding you know that coming out of Stanford and Silicon Valley uh, I, w- I would think that technology is the answer but my tutor very cleverly showed me was that technology was not the answer to all the problems. It actually complicates some problems. And you, she, my, my tutor's PhD was in sexual assault cases in India. And she showed me through a lot of case studies and a lot of um, papers and legal proceedings that when technology is introduced doesn't change things. It just amplifies the biases that already exist. That is not to say that it's never been helpful. She very cleverly showed me cases like the Stake versus Moore case in which the text between the perpetrator and the victim was used um, and justice was served. The perpetrator was put behind bars, the thing is, in legal proceedings, something I saw in all of these cases was that there's a clear-cut description of who the criminal is and looks like. So, what do they look like? Where, where in the society? What track of the society do they, do they come from? What level of education do they have? And so on, like factors like those. So, for instance... While a quote may understand the frequent use of laughing indicators such as haha or lol or you know that emoticon with tears coming out of your eyes within a social media message as indicating as indicating that a woman is not feeling victimized a contextual reading would assess whether the use of such expression might be common on social media irrespective of, of the topic being discussed or the user's true emotions at the time right so I read cases in which lawyers gave their own in, gave their own intention to single techs.
0: Yeah, it really reminded me. I think I think what you said, Muskan, about like this idea that tech can somehow be neutral and devoid of its context. Right. So this is always this idea of like, um, you know, everybody comes to Facebook or whatever platform on the same terms. They all make the same account. And that, that somehow makes people equal, despite the fact that they're clearly operating in a context, right, in, in which like certain people are marginalized or in which they're operating within systems of oppression. And yet, you know, these uh, systems they themselves are often even encoded within kind of like assumed... Um, it, it, gender dynamics. So Adrian Dobb, who is a Stanford professor, actually wrote one of my favorite books, What What Tech Calls Thinking. And one of the things he talked about is like the genderedness of data in which, you know, data is considered something and, and discussed within feminine terms, something that can be, uh, like he used the term grabbed, something that can be um, made compliant, made to work within your system. And the system itself is described in masculine terms, I thought was really, really um, like an interesting and revealing point about how these predominantly white male, like tech coders, entrepreneurs, CEOs who make this platform, how, how their assumptions about how the world works and gender dynamics are, are played out within the actual structures of the platform itself. Um, so I wonder a question for the two of you, you know, when we talk about um gender and technology, surveillance tech, the platform, the structures of the technology itself, how does that create and reproduce gender, the gender binary and these like systems of, of oppression, um, which you know, can operate on many different types of identities, whether it's gender or race or
2: um, what have you. That is such an interesting question and something that as a student of You know, AI biases I stumble upon more often than I want to. So uh, for one of my core classes, Data in Society, um, Professor Alison Powell was showing us how data is, like what it looks like and how how do you organize it and so on, um, before putting it or like training artificial intelligence based on that. And there's this question of, you know, gender, and then there's one point male, two point female, and then three point other. So there's already an inherent hierarchy of what comes first, what comes second. And that to me is just bizarre. So there's this there's this um, creation of a binary of, you know, you're either this or you're that. But the world that we live in there is no, it's not monochromatic. There are different shades all, ar- all around. And then the question of who is the person who is, you know, taking this data? And what are they doing with this data? How are they reproducing it? How are they looking at that? Because we have our own biases. And when we look at data or however we like design a form in this instance, for example, right? The one is a male, two is a female uh, there's no hierarchy there, but you can look at it in a different way. And uh, the the one of the things that pops out to me is there was uh, the class that I took at Stanford called CS 182 talked by three legendary professors. Um, and I was introduced by... Professor uh, Rob Reich, Professor Jeremy Weinstein and F- Professor Mehran Sahami to, uh, you know, targeting with, with marketing and uh, this idea where a, a target sent a bunch of pregnancy related ads and pamphlets to somebody's home in America. And uh, th- this happens to be a minor who is um, living with her her parents, her father. So her, her father looks at these pamphlets and goes, you know, whoa, like gets really agitated for, because his minor is getting these pamphlets. Pregnancy pamphlets from Target. And he has a heated discussion or uh, argument with Target. And a day or two later, they're very apologetic. They're like, we're so sorry about this. And you know, so on and so forth. And a couple of days after, they have another interaction and the father says, um, I'm, I'm sorry that um, I shouted. I, there were some, some things going on in my home that I wasn't aware of. So what sort of a world have we created in which information about ourselves that we are not in a position to share with our family or anybody already gets to these big companies and they use it they don't just save it they don't just like respect it no no they use it and capitalize on it
1: yeah do you know what's the the most like what i always find the most infuriating part about this story because like pregnancy is like a really big determining factor and for advertisers so like it's one of I think there's two things that really determine your consumption patterns. It's whether you access, you won't go to college or not, or whether you become pregnant or not. Um, and so like, this is a very sought after information, but what Target did after the story broke, they just hate it. So they didn't like stop accessing this information, obviously, because that's really important for advertising. So instead of sending somebody a brochure with just baby stuff, they will just send you the baby stuff featured prominently in a brochure that hides, and like hide the baby stuff amongst all the other stuff. Um, I'm like, love that. <laughs> that's exactly, <laughs> that. yeah.
2: And that's, that's the process of commodification for us. Uh, that to me is bizarre. Like we live in such a world and there are articles about, there's a lot of research about how um, technology and, and you know, spaces like BuzzFeed through a bunch of different um, quizzes that we are interested in and we've shown interest in by clicks, already know our sexuality, something super personal um, and it's just a question of what in a capitalist post-colonial world, what do they do with this data? And you know my curiosity really begins where there is intersection of these minority traits. So what happens when she is brown and a Muslim? Like what happens when there's an overlap of the different identities? How does that complicate the situation even more? Because the truth is, technology, bulk of the technology is designed in a different corner of the world and most of it is used in in the other. So I'm thinking of Facebook being in the Silicon Valley, based in the Silicon Valley, but most of, the, most of its audience is India and the East. And this is something that is also very common, like technology being designed in a different part of the world, which and used predominantly in another. And where it is designed, those people who are engineering this have limited to no understanding of the communities upon which this technology is being used or the audience that is going to use it. Something you will know us as brilliantly that human beings will always be good at invention, but not at the use of that invention. Uh, I think that 's a quote from twenty one lessons from the 21st century, and we see this same pattern in in the technology of for for surveillance that comes out of Israel for example, and is used in say India uh, we don 't really question like how what are the biases in this algorithm right We just pick it up copy paste it 's going to work, but the answer is no. It, it's not going to work because it has its own biases. Nobody, like there's very, although there's a lot of work being done at like understanding these biases, I'm speaking uh, to, you know, the, the books, uh, books like Automatic Inequality or Cathy O'Neill's uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. Um, and then we've also seen that AI is or can be racist through... Uh, race after technology, um, there is still a lot of work that needs to be done in these in these corners for us to understand what really happens when we, take, when we escalate or um, we sort of nationalize or internationalize the use of artificial intelligence or technology that was creating in a separate part of the world for a separate audience given a cer- certain context and is plugged out of it and used for the other.
1: Yeah, for sure. I feel like that's the that's the crux of the of like these algorithms or like these big tech um, solutions to things, right? Because they're so appealing to the people who fund it and build it because they can be scaled, which means they can make a lot of money very fast, very expansively. And that's exactly why they don't work in so many different contexts. So I feel like scale is something I really like. So when I used to work in my previous research um, in, in a research center in Egypt, there we were also our donors at the time, they were really interested in scale as well, which was really interesting because for them, something was so much more valuable if it could be scaled up like a solution to whatever like developmental problem or something and stuff so like our center spent like the most the most time just talking about how important context is and that just because something works in one context is not going to work in the other um I wrote down so many things of what I want to reply to like Alina the book that you mentioned I haven't read it but I really want to read it and I was just thinking of like the terms like harnessing data and data wrangling like that's the first thing that jumped to my mind and I was like oh exactly exactly yeah terrifying grab them by Um, the data was a oh my god (laughs) uh,
0: an ad that ran in Silicon Valley on a billboard that said grab them by the data and the idea of like protect and Adrian Dobb talks about this like the idea of like data is not valuable until you need to protect it from a hack you know it's just
1: really I mean I don't. It makes me think of some because I feel like data as a resource. If you think about it as a resource, is really weird because technically it's it is very abundant and there is a lot of data, but it is artificially made scarce through I don't know tech companies owning it, it not being shared, so that it can become a valuable resource. Just like if you look at the history of like crude oil, like it was also artificially made scarce so that prices can be up. So I feel like on one hand, yes. On the other, obviously, that's terrible. (laughs) It also, what you were talking about before, it really made me think of um, Maria Mies has this uh, really interesting book where she talks about how Francis Bacon, the inventor, I'm air-quotating very heavily, of the scientific method, the way that he talked about, (sighs) like, his, like, you could tell that he was... it it seemed like he was very inspired by inquisition as a method and torture as a method to reveal the truth so he would talk about how you need to like slice and like like kind of force the truth out of nature and a substance that he was dealing with which yeah was something I wanted to uh, reply to what you guys said I also feel like when it comes to like tech and women working in tech I find it almost offensive that the the way that it's always framed is that oh we need to bring in women into tech because they don't want to do uh like they're not good at math they're not good at computing when really the problem is that it's just a really hostile environment where they were forcibly moved out of because I mean there's great books like Mark Hicks uh programs inequality and Janet Abate's recoding gender I think where you really see that the first term like women were even called computers at a certain point in time because they did all the maths and they did the first programming so really um like it's not about them like like certain groups not having the capacities to do this it was like them forced out of it and their contributions erased uh and I feel like that that is like a general thing like I feel like that's another like really big question when it comes to like thinking about tech and gender because of the question of like whose work counts and who like if we think of tech and tech workers we always think about the Silicon Valley tech rows and stuff like that but like all the invisible like micro work of like labeling data and like cleaning data and all of that like that kind of work never gets counted or it also doesn't count as it's not counted as tech work and similarly the way that questions of what gets defined as like feminine work or housework or what counts as technology really influences also how we think about these things and also how a certain work gets valorized uh, i'm thinking of judy weitzman's book uh, i think feminism confronts technology where she writes about how certain things that are just seemed as like traditional female skills like using, I don't know, household appliances are never thought of as technology because you're just using technology, but it doesn't have anything to do with innovation or, or, or how, yeah, or, or, you know, it's just not counted as, does, it falls into a very different category as progress, technology and innovation, um, which is a really interesting point.
2: I wanted to add, historically, um, women have not been trusted and I, I know uh, we, like, talked about it a little bit, but we saw this in the health system, and it takes me to Henrietta Lacks' story, where she said she, had, she felt a lot of pain, but there was this understanding in the medical fields or circles at the time that black women have higher resistance to pain, so she wasn't given the painkillers that she needed. Um... And then we see the same thing in policing. We see the same thing in other state, like state um, establishments. And that is something that bothers me. So, all of this is reflecting in algorithms over the years. And this is how we're training technology that we think is going to take us, advance us towards equality and justice. And justice but is actually taking us way back in time. And that is a troubling thought to me. This idea that technology, on the face which looks like it's, it's all good and it's going to make things better, is going to inhibit access for us. That could be me, that could be you, that could, that could be any other woman or any other minority identity as we know it. And because it is so new and it is such a black box that people will not have the agency, the vocabulary to even question the decision that has been made. Takes me back to Kathy O'Neill's book, uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction. We see this time and time again. There are algorithms. We don't know how they work, but this is a score and it is neutral. So sorry, uh, you're not a good teacher. That's one of the case studies. And The reason why it's so troubling is because this means access in so many different services. So this could be health, access to health, access to education, access to employment, access to a service. This could mean like when a woman stands up and says, this bad thing happened to me. I felt discriminated in this sphere of my life her work will not just be taken. And I I just, like, I don't even know where to begin with how problematic that is.
1: Yeah, very, I feel like that's something I've been thinking about for my own research about the like period trackers, because like the question of using data as evidence, because maybe you're a woman, you're a woman of color, what you're saying isn't believed by your doctor, it's not believed by wider society, like thinking about the Me Too movement, where you have so many people being like, oh, I never knew. And you're like, mm. you just didn't listen to all the women in your life. Plus, also, you yeah. didn't know the origins of the movement that had been around for a really long time. It was founded by a black woman. So data as evidence, I find, very, I find it very tricky because it kind of undermines that you just, you know, believe what people are saying about their lived experiences um, but then, in the moment, it can be a very useful tool when you are talking to a doctor. Like people have told me in my interviews that they will like once they've shown that they've been tracking pain and things like that, the doctor will take them more seriously. Um, but I also have this terrifying example that I discovered in my research uh, of this woman who she was in the U.S. and she said that she was um, assaulted in her house. And then when the police came, for some reason, they also accessed the data of her Fitbit and it showed that she was on a run. So she was accused of making a false like, claim and like, well, had to go to prison because of it. And it's such a terrifying story because it's like, it really shows you the shortcomings of what can happen when you use like technology or data as evidence. Um, so I just wanted to sprinkle that example onto the conversation.
2: So interesting. Yeah, I guess the problem with technology or just where we are in time right now is that we just don't know how something can be used, can be accessed, right? Um, and don't get the bias within that system. An example that comes to my mind based on that is uh, some researchers at Stanford started playing around with GPT-3 And when it came out, everybody was like, oh, this is such a cool invention, right? Like, um, it's so cool to see what essays and articles it can spit out when you just give it a prompt. So, you know the joke, three people walked in a bar. These guys were just trying to work with that. So they said, three Muslims walked in a dash dash. And their sort of expectation was, it's going to make a joke. And they wanted to see what the joke was, Um, no matter what they did, as long as they used the word Muslim in GPT-3, the output was violent. So it's very interesting to think about, like, what kind of levels of bias and how, like, we haven't even experimented with these technologies and spaces enough to even completely understand where and to what degree are these biases, coded again.
0: Speaking of these like systems of oppression, you've done research on policing in the U.S., UK and Indian context um, and stuff. We've also talked a little bit about this like in a previous podcast in terms of like racism and colonialism, um, but, Maybe you could talk a little bit about how, I know you've, you've kind of talked about this now, but like how marginalized identities and systems of oppression can be reinforced or perpetuated through automated systems or quote-unquote AI. Um, especially when like sometimes the argument for the technology is that they can quote-unquote remove bias, whatever that means, because they are computers and ergo unbiased. One of the things, um, that I was thinking about is that actually it was a Stanford study that came out that, that said it could design a system that was, would identify people who are queer. Um, and it kind of reminds me of, of the target um, example that you gave of being able to identify people who were pregnant, except in this case, right? In the target case, it was correct, right? Like whatever like data or AI they were using to like analyze like p- like shopper's behavior was correct in being able to predict when somebody was pregnant. But this study is basically, you know, AI for eugenics, right? It was wrong, like it was based on this, this false assumption that people's facial f- figures could be used to predict something about their identity. Just just been disproven as wrong, it also ironically used a binary gender categories one time to identify queer people, which I just think is a little bit um <laughs> already problematic um and then obviously pointed out even if this wasn't even if this was possible, it would obviously obviously be used for harm. so I wonder there's this question then when we think about like AI and systems of oppression, which is like is one Is the premise correct, right? Is it possible to do such a thing? Two, is the data itself somehow biased, right? Is it that you're garbage in, garbage out? Are you collecting racist or sexist data? Or three, is is all that fine, but the way that the system is being deployed is that it's being deployed in such a way um, that it's uh, perpetuating or reinforcing or creating systems of oppression and that all of these seem to work kind of in tandem. Uh, this is a long, like a long one in question, but I just wondered like your thoughts on, on how systems of how we can think about the harms of, of automated
1: systems and systems of oppression in this way. Um, so I feel like in that example, or like the the three-part question, I feel like all three are problematic in different degrees, in different contexts. Um, I mean, generally, I feel like, so data always like decontextualizes things, like what we talked about before, right? It's the scale part that you want to get to. You want to you decontextualize something, put it into this data that it's legible in all contexts in this whatever universal math calculation level sphere. Um, and then you want to be able to implement it everywhere. And that just, that just doesn't that just doesn't work and that a lot of harms happen on lots of different steps of of that way um and I feel like that's the um like data in itself is also never neutral record keeping is never neutral and um I don't know the problem is like thinking that you want to remove bias from something I feel like also is a very that in itself is a very problematic way of looking at it because it assumes that you can quote something that is just accurate and find that if you just have the right data you will not have any problems which is never the case because even if you have something that works in one context it's not going to work in the other context people are going to use technology in very very different ways that you can't imagine for us. so I feel like as long as you don't have as many people involved as possible or you don't like in the planning and in the implementation it's going to be very hard um and i also i don't know where this it's like a weird it's like a weird i find it very strange that people keep asking like how can we build perfect technology or good technology i'm like (laughs) it's just it's not good technology technology is not good like that's just we were told that it is but it really it really isn't and i feel like if you if you look at outside the history of like, let's very shortly put it, like white, straight, cis, heterosexual men, then it becomes very, very apparent that technology is not that. So like, if you just look at the history of any, like all different kinds of marginalized people, it becomes very, if you look at experience of sex workers, um, refugees, people of color, women, genderqueer people, transgender people, like you will come up with so countless, countless, countless examples. of how and where the problems are and how technology intersects with oppression and is used by states and corporations for their interests. So, yeah,
2: long, short answer. So happy, Stefan, before me. Um, I agree. I echo a lot of what Steph said. I don't think, like, going with what Rosenberg says, uh, data is anything and data is something all the time so there is inherent bias in just collecting data there is also bias in interpreting data but i tend to believe that that does not mean we should just wash our hands off all sorts of technologies and say i'm never going to touch like we're never going to create another phone again there are some steps that we should make and to my understanding, the first one is the the teams that work with data need to be extremely diverse and they need to reflect the population, the, the society uh, upon which this technology is going to be used. There should also be a lot more diversity and encouragement in university settings where Students are being taught and there should be more research, more diverse research, which I'm so happy that is happening. This Algorithmic Justice League or Timnit Gabriel is there, which is a new organization. I think there, there needs to be more research done on who are the people creating these technologies? How uh, How is this technology? um being used and upon whom with what biases is it being used
1: Uh, yeah something i wanted to add on to that was also i feel like the fact when you when you do use technology for i don't know for policing or in certain contexts like border control and this technology is built for this context it also like this is like a follow-up on um removing bias, but also how, you know, how do we, how do we challenge that kind of technology or try to make it better? I feel like what happens is that it, it makes it harder to challenge it a lot because it is encoded for several reasons. Like in the moment, for example, in a border control situation, if something gets flagged up through the technology and it might be a mistake, the border control agent will always question themselves first and not the machine um so that makes it one step harder and also because you know now you have this neutral machine you don't really like it just kind of like I don't know technology does this weird thing where or at least we let it do this weird thing where it severs things from its like historical continuations with racist sexist coloniality like all these kinds of histories it's like technology is a fresh new leaf like which is yeah so there's a lot of work to be done to like rewrite technology into this history uh so i feel like that's one thing so like you have the encoded part of it that makes it more difficult to question plus then you have this wonderful thing intellectual property where a lot of these algorithms are trade secrets uh so you can't look at it i mean there's this classic this example that's i think definitely mentioned uh, like or like widely cited where in the us i think in some uh some prisons they had an automated ai system that decided whether or some somebody could have parole or not uh or get parole and when people try to question it and like find out how the decisions were made in the system they were told no it's a trade secret you can't you can't look into it and i mean that's obviously that's a that's a huge uh huge problem problem
2: yeah exactly and then as you were saying, Steph, there are biases even to the compass algorithm of recidivism. So, one of the papers that we read for for CS one eighty two at Stanford was if a judge, if it's a if the uh, convicted person if is is white, and the score says that there is a high chance that they will recidivate, uh, the the judge overrides that oftentimes because of their own biases whereas if it's a black convict and the com- the algorithm says there is uh, miraculously there is less chance of them to uh, reoffend they were they were again overriding and and you know there's still like because power still exists with the judge in this case so they will still use their bias in a way that they would have anyway used it without the presence of technology.
0: Yeah, I think I think for me what you what, what you were talking about, and that came up in my research on police thing, but it also comes up when I think about like technology corporations, is that like there are the people and then there are the people within the institution or the great leviathan. And it's a little bit, I, I don't know, I'm torn sometimes between whether people really can change, you know, this idea of changing from within an institution that is um like created with a specific history, right? So like with the police, you know, you can go into the police with the best of intentions, but that doesn't change the fact that the police were created to police poor racial minorities, right? Like, and so even if you have all this training in which, you know, your biases are identified, that doesn't really change the institution that you are operating within. I think the same thing about like, racism in the US. Like you can quote-unquote not be biased. Like I can go to a racial training and be like, "Haha, I'm not racist." But that doesn't change the fact that America is a racist country with racist institutions that historically oppressed like black people, right? Like it, it it does there's that idea of like bias and how certain certain systems of oppression can be coded within, you know, your example of the judge Miscon, right? Which is like, yeah, judges can be biased, but also the entire U.S. judicial system was created with this intention of upholding white supremacy and like policing, sl- and upholding slavery, right? Against, you know, with, with racism at its core. Um, and so I think there might be the, the same kind of dynamic playing out within technology corporations, especially when we talk about um, uh, like ethics uh, and, and AI ethics, which is that like, even if you do teach technologists quote unquote about ethics at the end of the day, if you're operating within a corporation, which, you know, is kind of the focus of my study, h- how much can you really change um, at an individual level? And how much is it just the institution working at as designed despite your best attempts, then from your perspective, how do you guys, either from like your own research or personal perspective, like what do you think is the institution or uh, group or, or way of thinking about things to change things? Do you think about it on the individual level? Do you think about it in terms of changing corporations or like training, it, you know, people who are coding? Do you think about working through the state or government? Do you think about changing community norms? Like what, what are your thoughts going forward in terms of like what you think the theory in a sense i think business people say,
2: what's your theory of change (laughs) i'll go first but let's talk more specifically to what sort of change i'm trying to allude now i mean change of the sort of like thinking so what are the questions that we're trying to solve what are the problems that we're trying to solve as part of um as part of our class, one of the cases that we studied in CS one eighty two was that a bunch of like a new company in in the Bay Area is trying to help you find a pool so that you have a pool party, so people who have a pool can rent it out. Now we're living in a world where there is abject poverty, where people. Health practitioners don't have, masks and equipment that they need to save lives. We're living in a world where there are, there are lack of spaces of safety, physical, like life and death level safety in Palestine. We live in a world where, people are dying on the streets, for no reason that is that is communicated to the public in Kashmir, and in Silicon Valley. We, we are making we're starting startups based on, on the scarcity of pools for pool party. I think this stems from this post colonial idea of capitalism. This this idea of you know where where is the need and how, how can I sell an idea to a lot more people and build a business and get Get, become the next billionaire and I think that's a deficit of education I think it's a deficit of education when we are not being equipped to ask the right question to go after the go out maybe not the right question maybe that's not the best way to frame it but go after the questions or the problems that are more important to solve at least more important than finding the right pool for a pool party.
1: Mm, all right. So one one point I wanted to did you know that the uh, Jeremy Bentham who just developed the panopticon thing, he also developed schools uh, that were implemented like I think in Egypt, where he was like, this is how we get the most, you know, out of our education system, clearly with the intention of like, you know, getting people maybe more indoctrinated than inspired I would I would I would say um just mentioning Jeremy Bentham because I feel like since I started researching surveillance Jeremy Bentham has just popped up in the most unexpected spaces so now I'm I'm, I'm popping him up myself um it's a difficult question in terms of change because it's like a how fundamental do we want this change to be I I've fundamentally believe that change is never an individual thing it has to be a collective thing so I feel like a short-term solution suggestion would always 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 be to find good ways of including the people that this technology is for in the decision making in the evaluation like through the entire whatever life cycle I really don't like when this kind of like economic language pops up in my own in my own sentences. But I feel like in the short term, that would be something that could have a positive impact for people, while it might not fundamentally change the system and racial capitalism will still be in place. Um, but like collective solutions to problems and I feel like yeah, that's like a that's a pragmatic, possibly you know, solution that has a bit more impact. Uh, I would definitely say there does need to be some sort of regulation around tech data. I'm not sure how that would be possible because we've seen the attempts and I feel like they're not very successful Um, because they also seem to embolden, they seem to, the people that do want to do right, they will do right. But the people that, the companies, the big companies that don't try to do the right thing Uh, They're already powerful enough to kind of pay off the fines. So I feel like the way that and the way that tech like regulation works is very individual, right? Because like the big thing I feel that that people, especially in Europe, after GDPR, which was hailed as this really big step, and um, that I feel like that people are experiencing their daily life is that they just have to like agree to cookies everywhere, and they're really annoyed with it, and they don't feel like anything has changed. Like there's, I feel like, such a big disillusionment and like almost like like you know when you think about climate change there's this a massive problem that you don't know where to start and it's almost just like climate anxiety and I feel like there's a very similar way people feel about tech and their own data so maybe one thing would be to find collective solutions but also to make people a bit more aware of the like powerful role that they play in the system because um I don't know like all this data it comes through our interactions with this technology so we're kind of the source that produces this data and it's also the thing that like we're still make buying the things you know so I feel like that might be that might be one thing that could lead to something <laughs> that's a very <laughs> that's a very known answer but that's that's the best answer you're, you're getting yeah <laughs>
0: Thank you so much again to Stephanie and Muskan for coming on this episode of the Anti-Dystopians. As usual, all of the books, articles, and resources mentioned will be available in the show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. You can also sign up to the Anti-Dystopians email newsletter or follow us on Twitter at the handle at Anti-Dystopians. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> um that's kind of made me think uh somebody tweeted something like the only app that has ever solved a, an actual problem that we all had is shazam Which <laughs> is
1: when you're listening to music and you Retweet. need to know what
2: the song is that's fantastic Retweet. that is that is pretty accurate